1: Welcome to the New Books Network. How strong is the Iranian resistance and which parts of society does that resistance come from? Are there any parallels with the resistance that brought down the Shah of Iran? Well, to discuss those issues, I have with me now Iran Watcher, NYU academic and journalist Azadeh Moaveni. So welcome to you. Good
2: morning. Thank you for having me, Owen.
1: And let's start With 79, if we can, and the revolution, what was the source of the opposition to the Shah of Iran? Can you split up, if you like, Iranian society into the different bits that were uh, coalescing at that time to produce that revolution?
2: Certainly, there were strands of opposition to the Shah from among Different classes uh, and, and different strata of society that overlap across those classes, if if that's a way to, to sort of visualize it. Certainly there was a large demographic among the urban The newly arrived or newly minted urban poor, these were Iranians who had come to cities from rural areas in the 60s and 70s as a result of the Shah's land reforms, which had been really pushed and encouraged um, upon him by Western governments who thought that he needed to reform his country and had very specific ideas for how he should do that. Uh, The land reforms brought rural Iranians into the cities. They saw their quality of life Decline. They saw it hard to to subsist in the way that they had back in in the rural areas and villages. And so you had this sort of newly emerged urban working class, sort of urban poor. So this was certainly a demographic that was ripe for the sort of discontent that brewed in, in the 70s. So these were, as I said, working class lower income, poor, working, you know, often day to day. Then you had a sort of middle class, um, a sort of middle class of, Students, intellectuals, many of them had studied uh, abroad, had been sent to Europe or the States and had been part of the anti-war movements in the United States uh, in the 60s and the 70s. They had different ideas about about democracy and and wanted the Shah's government to be more accountable to the people. They were very much infected by the spirit of the 60s and that kind of um, sort of anti-capitalist, sort of communist-infused politics. You also had religious Iranians, the traditional sort of ulama class, religious Iranians of different class backgrounds who felt that the Shah's westernization, that its uh, relations with the West, with the United States, with the sort of cultural policies of, of the government, they were sort of from a cultural and, and sort of social standpoint opposed to that. This was a government that was sort of trying to bring Iran in line culturally with, with the most sort of liberal inclusive kind of governments of the West at the time. So you had avant-garde theater troops that were being funded by by the Queen's sort of cultural pocket. There was a Museum of Modern Art in Tehran that had Warhol coming to visit. Um, I mean, it was very much, Iran was sort of at the, at the very front of the sort of global museum and art scene. And this sort of, as you can imagine, laid across a society that was still very much making its transition from a developing country with standards of, of living and literacy that were, that were not advanced enough yet. So you had sort of state-driven reforms at the top that were moving very fast and a society beneath that was moving much slower. Uh, and this created a lot of tension. So you had these different demographics that were discontent for various reasons, but much of it not purely driven by economics, which I think is, is very different from today.
1: Right. So that's very striking because you've got different groups who you basically are saying have have quite different objectives and different ideas, but unifying and coming together in opposition to to the Shah.
2: Well, they unified in opposition to the Shah, but they were not unified at all around what they wanted to replace the Shah. And that's why the initial period of the revolution was so restive. And, and violent. You basically had groups that were more organized. The the religious Islamist groups that were more organized essentially imposed themselves and their vision, which was an Islamic republic, which was not the vision of the secular left and the Marxists and uh, the technocratic students. They came out on top because they were better organized and they had a vision. They just hadn't shared it yet with everyone else because. All that had united them before right up until the moment of of the tipping point of the Shah leaving was that they wanted the Shah gone. There was no collective, unified, positive vision. And that's why I think part of the story of why the Islamic Republic has been so conflicted in all of the years since, because it has imposed a minoritarian vision on a majority that never really, truly signed up for what the the system became.
1: Now, you've mentioned three groups, the sort of new urban Workers, the middle classes, and the clergy. And I'd like to sort of split them up, you know, look inside those different groups in a minute. But first of all, just other groups in Iranian society who may have joined this opposition to the Shah. What about ethnic minorities, the Baluch, for example, and any others? Were they part of this?
2: Those groups did participate. Um, those groups have always participated in national revolts or moments of, of national protest as as enthusiastically as Iranians across the rest of the country. Because, of course, historically, they've had sort of shared grievances that bring Iranians together to engage in these kind of collective politics, but theirs are refracted through their particular demands and their particular dissatisfactions with the central government. I mean, that is a very old story of Iran. Iran is, is the story of Iran is that of a a central government trying to hold together a country whose border regions on all sides are composed of ethnic and religious and linguistic minorities. And and that is a very old story. Um, we see that part of inflecting the, the uprising or the unrest today, um, much as it has in the past.
1: Right. And you're talking about Baluch, uh, Kurds, any others?
2: Well, there's Baluch um, in in the areas bordering um Uh, the east of the country, they are Sunni Muslims, so they are both Baluch and Sunni. Uh, The Kurds um, on on the western border, who are uh, some Sunni, um, not all, so they both have um, an ethnic, linguistic, and religious difference of of identity. And then in the south, you have Arabs who are Shia, but are ethnically Arab and often speak Arabic. So you have really a a country that is a mosaic, and that is you know, at times a source of its great strength and at times a restiveness, uh, a source of real vulnerability.
1: Now, thinking about other countries in the region, I mean, I know a bit about Pakistan, and there the landowners, the big feudal, as they're called landowners, would be a source of stability for the royal regime if, you know, it, if it had been a parallel situation. You're talking about land reform. Did, <clears throat> you're talking about land reform. Did that mean that the, the landowners who may have been expected to bolster the Shah's regime were no longer? force that they used to be?
2: Well, I think in Iran, historically, um, these old landowners, of course, you know, did have their allegiances to to the central government. Um, The Shah worked very hard to bring different constituencies sort of in line with his centralization project. He worked very hard to build schools and um, offer... Uh, incentives for Iran's um, tribes, really, the Bakhtiaris, for example, to to sort of fall in line with the collective government and to bring them into what sort of citizenship in, in a modern collective state had to offer. So he certainly did try to do this. But land reform meant that that kind of historical relationship between landowners and, and, and peasants or the sort of old feudal system um, changed to the point where there was this massive migration to the cities. So while the allegiance of the landowners or, or sort of uh, historical landowners mattered and, and continued to matter, it was really this push to the cities that was really the source of the, the sort of momentum and ferment against his, his rule.
1: Some Western analysts of Iran and, and maybe countries like Iran Talk about a merchant class. Is that just an Orientalist sort of approach or is that a real thing? And what, what, if so, what, what role did they play?
2: That's certainly a real thing. You know, every country has a, a commercial class, regardless of, of what we call it, whether we call it a bazaar class or a merchant class or a commercial class. I mean, merchant classes have been part of the fabric of Middle Eastern societies, just as they've been part of the fabric of, of any society. And, and they're part of the, the story of, of, of shifting economic, political economic ties. I mean, we can see their influence and, and trace it in, in places like Syria and Iraq as well. Um, in Iran, the merchant class or the sort of traditional mercantile class certainly was a powerful force. Also, um, labor, labor force uh, and the sort of makeup of, of the labor market was was very different in the 60s and 70s. There was much more concentrated sectors and 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 the way that the labor force was composed was was much more concentrated and the role of unions was was much stronger than in Iran it's indeed much much of the world but the merchant class traditionally those who were aligned with the bazaar which were the centers of commerce in major cities uh, were historically very religious they were quite traditional they were perhaps not not as comfortable and aligned with some of the cultural policies, the social policies that the Shah system was pursuing. Uh, This top-down feminism or this sort of top-down emancipation of women that his uh, National Organization for Women was pursuing, for example, was very much sort of disconnected from the daily realities and the cultural sensibilities of the majority of Iranians at the time. And that was a source of opposition from within these classes, the merchant class, the traditionalist classes as well. So they were a force. They were organized around centers of commerce in major cities. Uh, They did have a more traditional and religious sensibility and felt themselves to be sort of neglected or their mores to be uh, sort of trampled over in in the manner that the Shah's government was pursuing its different reform projects.
1: And as part of the urbanisation you've talked about and the the people leaving the countryside and coming to the cities, uh, presumably that means there were big industrialists who had resources. How did they fit in?
2: I think the story of the industrialization of Iran is is a slower one than than perhaps is is believed. Industry in Iran was developing around centers like textiles, like cars, um, but it wasn't a sort of highly industrialized society at that point in the 60s and 70s, as as you might imagine. I mean, key sectors were still the oil economy. The government was a major employer across the civil service. I don't think there were sort of bigwig industrialists, as you might imagine, to sort of be uh, accountable. Force. I mean, these were, these were parts of Iran that were developing because there were, you know, tens of thousands of students studying engineering in the United States coming back who were beginning that process of industrializing Iran through various sectors.
1: You've described the various groups within Iran who were struggling against the Shah. To what extent were they dependent on external support? Was that a factor?
2: I don't believe that external support for these groups was a significant factor at that time. What was perhaps um, a more significant factor, if we're looking at the question of external influences on Iran's domestic affairs, uh, was the the pressure and the growing distance that Western governments, specifically the United States, and to, to an extent also Britain, were imposing on the Shah. The Shah in in the mid-70s began to be, from the perspective of Western governments, very recalcitrant. He was driving up the price for oil. He was very much prioritizing the modernization and the growth of the Iranian economy at the expense in, in real terms of, of Western economies. Um, the higher oil prices at the time in the 70s meant that Western economies that exported a great deal of oil from Iran were affected by that. So the sort of net results, the net profit for Iran, which the Shah believed was Iran's right, and, and that Iran needed much more desperately because it was behind in terms of its economic development. He had a society that needed to modernize. He had these rural and urban classes that needed literacy. They needed healthcare, and he needed to fund that. So he was driving up oil prices in a way that Western governments found very unpalatable, and they put pressure on him. You can see it in the interviews the Shah gives in the 70s to American broadcasters and the BBC. Suddenly the question of human rights and the Shah's human rights record became a stick with which to beat the Shah. He was constantly castigated and and sort of brought before different, uh, you know, this, this issue of his, his treatment of his people suddenly came to the forefront. Um, and he certainly believed that this was a result of his Uh, independence. So that is is very much part of the sort of external dynamics around the pressure that was being brought to him. The BBC in the UK was very much a source of antagonism. The reporting on the revolution sort of created a national figure out of his opposition, uh, Khomeini the Ayatollah Khomeini sitting in exile in Paris became a celebrity in large part because of the Western media. Uh, So the role of the BBC, the role of the Western media, collectively together with the policies of the American government and the British government, who were just disillusioned with the Shah and saw him as uh, no longer a sort of friendly client, um, sort of culminated in intense pressure on his government and a sustained boost to the opposition. And this was very much at the very centre of the dynamics of the revolution.
1: Yeah. And and just two sort of follow-ups to these various groups you've identified. On the intellectuals, there was a division, wasn't there, between those who were quite conservative and those who were more radical and more on the left? Can you tell us about that?
2: So amongst the opposition to the Shah, amongst the the sort of intellectuals and the students, um, and the, I don't know, we can call them the the sort of different sort of stripes of the intelligentsia. There were secularists who were, had different stripes. There were leftists, there were there were sort of conventional secular leftists, conventional in the sense that they were not Marxists or Trots or or Maoists. They were just a, you know, they, they were part of the spectrum as well. And then you had religious students who were inf- who were influenced by Islamist movements in, in the Arab world as well, who felt that Iran had a national identity that was religious, that was Eastern, and that it needed to bring that identity into its governance. And they very much sort of tried to, some of them, you know, the sort of uh, ideologue of, of that part of the movement, Ali Shariati, tried to fuse Marxist ideals with Islamist ideals to sort of come up with this kind of hybrid Islamist-Marxist vision of, of, of opposition to the Shah. So it was really a varied group along a spectrum of, of religious ideology all the way to sort of hardcore uh, secular leftists who sort of articulated their opposition to the Shah through these different sort of attitudes about the role of religion in society.
1: Uh, and within the the clergy, you've talked about Sunnis, you know, the Baluch Sunnis, maybe some Kurd Kurdish Sunnis, was that an issue, that there were divisions within the religious establishment or not?
2: The religious establishment, you know, certainly not all of it was united behind the, the sort of Ayatollah Khomeini's model of opposition. Much of the Islamic clergy in Iran is quietist and and believes that there is no role for the Shia clergy in informal governance. That that is a dilution of of its role, of its worldly role. That it that it makes the clergy vulnerable to having its religious and its spiritual authority undermined. I think it's really important to to underscore that that the religious radicals were very much revolutionaries first and religious ideologues second. So the importance or the need to have the clergy united behind them was really secondary to their project. They were very adept at shifting their religious attitudes to suit their sort of political ambitions. So You know, you can see this in the first and and the second bouts of hostage taking by different student radicals in the early days of the revolution, which, of course, you know, is now sort of indelibly associated with the revolution. The first hostage taking is, is really forgotten because it was... It was run by leftists. It was not religious radicals. And it turned out to be hugely successful because the anti-American ferment uh, around the revolution was fierce. And the Ayatollah Khomeini opposed that at first. But then when he saw how successful it was, the, the second group of students who went and took hostages at the American embassy who were who were religious had his backing because he thought that that, you know, he read the mood of, of the streets. So, you know, this question of, you know, what is religious and what is revolutionary amongst the, the Islamists was very fluid.
1: We've heard a lot about who opposed the Shah. Was anyone on his side? There were many on his
2: side. There were technocrats, there were there were many who felt that Iran's development would be deeply interrupted and shattered by unrest. There were those who felt that that the Shah's authoritarianism was not as egregious perhaps as it was uh, portrayed in the western media that it was not the sort of brutal police state that it was that it was made out to be when judged by the standards of, of the time amongst countries of the region and indeed countries um, in, in the west as well that that these abuses were overstated there was yeah the traditional aristocratic landed elite was not in favor of this massive overthrow. You know, as as in all moments of revolution, it's very often the classes that feel they have less to lose and who are uh, perhaps more deeply alienated, who are sort of at the forefront.
1: There's one other group that we should talk about before we come to the current situation, which is the army. So, Obviously that you know from the shah's point of view would have been a very important organization who he would expect to defend his government what 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 happened with the army and and presumably all the different groups you've mentioned were reflected in the army or most of them
2: many were certainly many were and the the army was um you know at the top at, at the very top fiercely loyal to to the Shah. We saw that in 1953, when the Americans and the British launched a coup against Iran, Prime Minister Mossadegh, who at the time had nationalized Iran's oil and, and was essentially trying to outmaneuver the Shah in, in taking forward the oil nationalization project, it was the military and the army who were crucial to that effort, who were loyalist, who were monarchist at core and were the, were the key actors that the British and the Americans were able to rely upon to, to outmaneuver the sort of move by Mossadegh to, to marginalize the Shah at that time and take forward oil nationalization. So, so the army traditionally was, was a bastion of monarchist sentiment and, and loyalty. But but also, you know, at the level of, of you know, policing and at the level of, The the, the masses of the army um, were in tune with public mood. And you have to remember that, of course, at the time, the crowds and the the sort of momentum that was swelling on the streets of Iran was was enormous. I mean, these were, you know, it's called the last great revolution of the 20th century, precisely for that reason, that it was a mass uprising. And so you know, having to rely on the army to put down this kind of massive uprising, when the rank and file of the army felt much more aligned with the grievances of of ordinary people had been influenced by that kind of very emotional sort of street-infused anger at the Shah. It was just impossible to go against the will of the people in that way when the army was, as you say, composed by, you know, young people, young men who who reflected society. And the Shah, of course, himself did not wish to be brutal in, in, in putting down the unrest. You know, this is certainly a lesson that the, the government today has learned from the Shah. He, he was not willing to, even though the army was loyal to him, he was not willing to command it to sort of mow down protesters. So had the army been tasked by the Shah to do that, it would have complied, I, I wager, and I think many would think, but he didn't seek that.
1: Right, well that gives us such good context to try and understand what's happening now or in 2022. So my first question is, how big is this latest round of protest been? If you put it in the post-79 period, is what we've seen in 2022 the most significant uprising or protest?
2: It is the most significant uprising since the revolution because it's been more sustained than any round of protest since the revolution. It has gone on for weeks, months. I think we we will be soon entering its fourth month. There has been no bout of protest that has been so sustained. And it is the, the first nationwide sustained protest as well. The geographic sweep of it is is quite key. And it is also, I think, the first sustained nationwide round of protest that has been collectively so radical. It has not been organized around a specific grievance, protest, the closure of a newspaper, an election result, unpaid wages. I mean, this is a nationwide revolt against the whole nature of governance. And it's very clear from the the shouts and, and the slogans that are increasingly radical that people are demanding a whole new system of politics. So in in all of these ways, it is very unprecedented.
1: Yeah, but now then the question is, which groups that were involved in 79 are no longer involved in this current movement? You know, how much weaker is it? Who is it missing?
2: It's missing workers. It's missing organized workers. But that's partly because Iran's economy is very different. And it's partly because Iran's economy has been battered. By Of course, by corruption and internal mismanagement for years, but also by Western economic sanctions, specifically American sanctions that impose secondary sanctions on anyone else that does trade with Iran. So workers and the sort of collective labor mobilization that was really key to the uprising in 1979 is, is largely absent today or has been uh, up until now. Um, partly because um, the the state of the economy is such that workers have much more to lose. They are living much more precarious lives comparatively. The role of unions is weaker. The sort of state employment sector is smaller. So there's all sorts of economic reasons why we haven't seen that kind of labor mobilization. And also, um, you know, the fabric of society is is very different. You know, you have an ex-middle class you know, this is something that didn't really exist in 1979. You have a middle class that has declined and and sort of plummeted in terms of its well-being and quality of life in, in the last sort of five to seven years. I think it's important to sort of also note that the numbers, Owen, compared to what we saw or, you know, what the historical records saw in, in 1979 are very different. I mean, Iran is a country of 80, 85 million people. There's been no protest up until now that at most has been sort of larger than, you know, ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people. The, the, the average size of these protests is very small compared to the, the sort of size of the country. You know, that's another thing to, to note is that, you know, large constituencies are not out on the street yet. You know, so who's missing is sort of everyone is, is the answer across all these different and, and very changed demographics.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, very, very helpful to put it in that context. Because when you see the TV pictures of 79, I mean, it was just astonishing, wasn't it? I mean, the number of people who are out and what we're watching now is, is obviously far, far smaller. So let's come at it the other way then. Who is taking to the streets just now? Which groups?
2: From the beginning, there was, when the protests were scattered, largely all over the country, which was, you know, the second half of September and October, it was a very diverse group that was out. Very young people, certainly. I think the, the median age of arrested protesters is very young, you know, late teens. So young people are out and have been out. And, and this ex-middle class that I speak of, um, you know, young, young people who have sort of grown up with parents, an expectation of a quality of life that's plummeted. You know, this is a class of people who were unable to access COVID vaccinations, who who sort of saw family and relatives die as a result of that. You know, again, government state mismanagement, Western sanctions. You know, it's it's a it's a bad story, um, but they've seen their lives deteriorate. They've seen their lives shrink. They can't afford foreign travel anymore. They can't afford study abroad anymore. These are the people who who are out. Um, it is not the extremely angry. Poor, who were part of the the protests of, of twenty nineteen. This is in terms of social class. You know, I would say an ex middle class. It's very much motivated by economic grievances, but also fierce social and cultural grievances, political ones. So that's you know the the sort of the, the span of it. But it's important to note. I think in the last month, particularly the protests have clumped around the regions that we talked about earlier uh, in Kurdistan and in Balochistan, where the the state repression has been particularly ferocious. The the riots, the the protests have been much more violent on both sides. um, And they have taken on characteristics of separatist revolt, certainly in in the Kurdish area. You know, there is a kind of overlap between an angry rebellion of Sunni minorities in Balochistan who are just you know ferociously angry at the government for for you know decades of of what they perceive as sort of second class citizen treatment so you know the protests have taken on that character in in these two particular regions and and that's partly why the state has really taken forward this narrative of fragmentation, that there's a threat that Iran could be fragmented by these protests. Um, It has treated these protesters with much more brutality. It's sort of treated them through the the sort of prism of national security. So this is kind of part of the picture as well.
1: But any any sort of protest movement that relies on those minorities is, you know, it's not going to work, is it? The the movement has to come from mainstream Iran.
2: The movement has to have its engine, certainly, yes, from mainstream Iran. You know, these groups will be, you know, will be be critical. Their participation will be critical. But it cannot be driven largely by them. And it cannot be driven by their particularist grievances and aspirations because then it is no longer going to unify and, and bring out the mainstream of, of Iranian society. I think until now, you know, many of the groups have been in these areas also quite clever. They've been very much nationalist in their messaging. The Sunni prayer leader of Balochistan called for a national referendum. You know, He speaks in the language of, of governance and citizenship. So I think they've been very careful in these regions as well, in terms of messaging and and optics to continue to try and portray this as a nationalist sort of action, but sort of refracted through the grievances of their area. But on the street, in the reality, it it has been more more violent in those areas uh, uh, on both sides. But you're right. I mean, at at the core of it, it is the mainstream of society, the sort of silent majority that that is often talked about in Iran that needs to to sort of, they are the weight that the engine needs to pull. And they will not be pulled by these kind of sort of sectarian-led ferment.
1: And what about the role of women in 2022? Because there's a lot made of that in the Western press, maybe giving a false impression, I don't know. How real was that?
2: Very real. I think the role of women, the anger of women, the mobilization of women around the death of this woman, Masa Amini, following her, her time in in police custody, has been central. Women and girls have been the most adversely impacted by Iran's economic deterioration, Iran's essential pauperization at the hands of Western sanctions, as a result of Western sanctions, and and the state's terrible domestic and, and foreign policies. They have had the highest rate of job losses. They have had the most significant deterioration in their, in their well-being and quality of life and their independence. You know, women and girls, of course, the most vulnerable in any society, are the most impacted when that society declines. Um, and so their sort of status as second class citizens, both in terms of, you know, Iranian patriarchal culture and the sort of governance, the poor governance of, of the Iranian system has been felt incredibly acutely. Their demands, their very innocent basic demands for gender equality before the law for an end to Iranian the, to the discrimination they face by the Iranian legal system have been met year after year, decade after decade with total crackdown and refusal to countenance their demands for change in terms of inheritance rights, divorce rights, child custody rights, to the point where I think their fury at having their, their bodies and, and their appearance so controlled by the state was, was central to all of this. And I think the spirit of, of women sort of unified this movement from, from the very start. I mean, truly, that has been the most unifying element of, of all across these protests, I would say, because as we've spoken about, you know, the different grievances across Iranian society make collective action challenging. But that perception of fundamentally flawed citizenship rights offered to women is something that unifies across all of Iranian society. So it matters very greatly.
1: And, and I just wanted to ask you about the current situation within the clergy and within the army. So first of all, the army is probably the easier one. I mean, to what extent is there sympathy within the army, maybe the police, to the protesters? Or can the government just rely on them and be sure of their support?
2: The army and the police are much less ideological than the Revolutionary Guard. So Iran has multiple security and military Apparatuses. It's important to, to note. So the army historically has been has been less ideological. It has been more aligned with sort of notions of of, of national security um, in in the sort of conventional military sense. Um, it hasn't been tasked with sort of ideological defense and the export of the revolution and the way that the Revolutionary Guard has. Uh, the police have been a municipal force. You know, as as is the convention everywhere. Um, so they are much more aligned with and attuned with the demands of these protesters. I mean they are of the society that has produced these protesters and you could sort of see very clearly in the early days of the of the protests that the police realized this, that the system realized this, and that they were they were trying to avoid the kind of street level Crackdown, sort of turning the police out, asking them to turn out and and put down a popular revolt. I think that the system recognized that would be really disastrous, precisely because the army and the police are not sort of on the other side of this, um, as as you know you might might sort of imagine. So, in in key areas, they have the system has had to send out the Revolutionary Guard in in border areas to to enforce, and there is certainly. A, a reliance and and an awareness within the the government or the system of having to sort of portion out the control of this of this restive moment. Relying ultimately on the Revolutionary Guard for for a lot of it, and this is this is a fighting force that has uh, prosecuted a very successful insurgency against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria in recent years. You know, this is a force that is very much recently trained and and capable of of, of anti-insurgency action, and and I think that's sort of very often overlooked when the Iranian the, the capacity of the Iranian state is is examined. The military force successfully that was key to essentially saving Iraq, the fall of Baghdad at the hands of the Islamic State, is adept. You know, it knows what it's doing, and it's important that it's that its that its ability to do that be be recognized in a very pragmatic way.
1: Which takes us on to the clergy. And ever since 1979 you know, Western journalists have, have um, talked about the, the the moderates and the hardliners and that sort of thing. And academics have tended to say, oh no, that's far too simplistic and it's not like that. Uh, how divided is the clergy now? And are those divisions growing in, in any significant way?
2: The, the clergy in Iran has been very much its its influence, its its ethical and moral guidance and ability to shape society has arguably declined very greatly since the revolution. There's a portion of the clergy that's essentially fallen in line with the state and is viewed as sort of statist clergy and sort of uh, viewed with the the sort of suspicion or the antagonism with which the state is viewed. Then there is the quietest clergy that prefers to stay out of these battles, that feels itself beleaguered, that feels itself attempting to regain or attempting to maintain some kind of spiritual moral voice in a society that is increasingly secular, that views theocracy as that as a failed system. So I think the role of the clergy is, is much diminished in Iranian political and social life. So, you know, if there are divisions, they have not emerged at the forefront. I mean, there certainly have been voices, you know, there, there are voices in the clergy who have spoken out against the religious basis, sort of waging war against God, basis for some of the executions that, that the Iranian judiciary has pursued. They have have really dismantled the sort of judicial or legal nature of those claims and have refuted them. You know, there are, there are voices from senior clerical families that have spoken out against morality policing as as a kind of cornerstone of the state. They've sort of spoken out against this as, as at the very heart of the erosion of state-society relations. So there are these voices and there are these strong notes of opposition, but, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore at all. I would say, Owen, because the Iranian state is now very much controlled and in the hands of a very, very concentrated system of of individuals who, who happen to have a cleric at the top. But that cleric is very much reliant upon a military force, a revolutionary guard for his ability to maintain power. And if that sort of system is seen as increasingly unpopular. You know, I think one thing that we might contemplate or or see, I mean, this is much discussed in Iran in the context of succession and what will happen after Iran's present supreme leader dies, is the possibility that the clerical role of the state is 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 diminished, that perhaps this sort of role of the supreme leader is dismantled. And you have a much more Pakistan or Egypt style state where you have the military in, in control. There is not a clerical figurehead at the top and power is maintained in that way.
1: I wonder whether there's a parallel with the Soviet Union in in this respect, that when, towards the latter stages of the Soviet Union, people in the West discussed what could bring it down there was you know, a lot of concentration on dissidents and people outside the system complaining and sort of Western, yeah, you know, not many of some of whom were nationalists, weren't they? But some of whom were Western liberal, uh, Western liberals who, who opposed, you know, very vocally opposed the Soviet system and paid a very heavy price for doing so in, in the prison camps and so on. And then there were people who perhaps understood the Soviet Union better, who said, no, that any change will come from within the system, which is what happened, actually. Do, do, do you think in Iran, it's like that, too? Because what you're telling me is that the protests on the streets, the street power, is nothing like 79. And and there isn't the same concentration of groups, different groups who've come together.
2: There isn't yet. It, it does appear to be a revolutionary process, if, if not, you know, and, and of course, 79 was the outcome of years of ferment and opposition and mobilization, years of, of that kind of activism. So I think, you know, we could sort of look at this present movement as the beginning of, of such a process. It might be 10 years away before there is significant change. Um, but I think, you know, looking, looking across the region at the outcome of the Arab Spring uprisings as well, which were largely internally fueled at the beginning, but then wrecked and and arguably ruined and devastated by the role of outsiders. I mean, the lesson really for Iran and the historical lesson that you mentioned for the Soviet Union is very clear that, that change must come from within, that it cannot be effectively or productively instigated from from the outside, and that it must be led by or sort of shepherded by those who have a stake in the stability of the system and the ability of the system that evolves out of it to be able to meet the demands and the welfare of the people. I think that there are forces in Iran that, that that may seek that, but I think... I think the the role of the outside, though, is is really critical here. I mean, I think an Iran that is isolated by the West, that is kept under this suffocating chokehold of economic sanctions, that becomes a client state of Russia and China, will not produce the the sort of rise or propel the rise or the influence of those inside that have a nationalist, public-serving vision. So I think You know, at the same time that we say that change must come from the inside and it must come from within those who have a stake in maintaining some uh, stability and transition to a system that, that can better meet the accountability and needs of the people they will not rise if Iran is is turned into North Korea so I think the role of the West and the decision of Western governments at the same time is, is key you know Iran is very much paralyzed internally um, over questions of, of the nuclear deal but the role of the West also and the outcome of Iran is quite critical
1: yeah but I mean that's that's you know the isolation of Iran may not uh, be an effective policy but when you take other countries as you've mentioned you know if you take Egypt which has had massive support from the West over the years, I mean, that hasn't worked either. So, I mean, it it seems that there isn't any Western policy that can produce a good outcome.
2: I would say that the outcome in Egypt was not uninfluenced by the response in the United States to the win of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, I think there's panic in the West when these democratic outcomes in the region produce Islamist governments. And that is a process that leads to so many hiccups and halts of, of development and change. The same thing in Tunisia with with the Arab Spring and the rise of Ennahda, the Islamist party there. I mean, there was a massive move essentially in, in Europe to marginalize and and isolate that outcome. So, you know, I think that's, that's part of it. It's not simply- No, sure,
1: <laughs> I, I, I agreed. But I mean, that's largely inspired by seeing how badly Iran's been governed since 1979, isn't it?
2: No, I don't think it's entirely about how Iran has been run since 1979. Look at how Saudi Arabia is run. Saudi Arabia is a close client and partner of the United States and Britain because it's a useful and lucrative arms market. Look at Bahrain. I mean, these are all deeply authoritarian, deeply misogynistic, Feudal states run by families, where they torture people in prison and are run abominably. You know those are allies and partners of of the West. Iran is isolated, in large part because it sought to be independent since the 1979 Revolution, and it is antagonistic with Israel. So I think Israel's security, Israel's desire and existential need for Iran to never be normalized, is at the very center of these dynamics.
1: Yeah. And and so when you look ahead, you're really saying, I think, that you see more evolutionary change than revolutionary change, at least in the foreseeable future.
2: That's what I hope to see. Because revolutionary change, speaking very candidly, and not because this outcome or or this sort of sentiment gladdens me in any way, I think revolutionary change will be violently put down by this state. And we will end up with a more repressive, less accountable, more isolated, more dogmatic government than we have now. Evolutionary change in which these same governing forces have a stake in a more accountable outcome, in which their interests are not entirely thrown out into the dustbin. Where will they go? I mean, will they go and all take exile in Damascus? I, I don't think they will accept that. They're very powerful. Um, there needs to be a transition through which Iran doesn't go through either fragmentation, essentially, like what is uh, what has happened to Syria, so that Iran territorially becomes fragmented, or that Iran becomes a failed state. I mean, none of these outcomes will be beneficial for the Iranian people. but. An evolution where reform-minded, technocratic-minded, meritocratic-minded forces within the system who out of both self-preservation and a sense of national interest can come forward at a time that's auspicious uh, and move the country towards uh, a shift, however that comes about. I I see that as the only way to, to avoid a very bloody and less progressive
1: outcome. Well, Azadeh Avenue, thank you very much for helping us understand what the future might hold for Iran.
2: It was my pleasure, Owen.